What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. Just half an hour after the Saturn V bearing Apollo 11 lifted off from Cape Kennedy, Vice President Spiro Agnew sat down with Walter Cronkite, anchorman for the CBS Evening News. After a brief discussion about the launch, Cronkite said the following. You know, it's the nature of the American and the people in the space program particularly to constantly look beyond where we are. Uh, this is uh, the nature of the man who wants to go to the moon. However, Cronkite reminded the vice president that he'd recently said, I think the United States should undertake a very ambitious new project in space. I think we should attempt interplanetary exploration in a man's sense. At the time Agnew sat down with America's most beloved newsman, Apollo 11 had just reached orbit. It would be four more days before it reached the moon, and no one knew if the first lunar mission would even be successful. Despite that context, the Vice President of the United States felt that America needed to articulate a broad objective for the future. It's very easy to forego the optimistic long-range approach to these things uh, because you can always find a, a hundred reasons not to do it or why it may fail. But with the way science has advanced in the past 50 years, I don't think we'd be out of line in saying, for example, we're going to put a man on Mars by the end of this century. And when it came to Mars, Agnew's objective was clear. And I think we should do it. By the end of the century. In 1969, the year 1999 seemed a long way off. As of the time of this recording, 1999 was already two decades ago. And we are still decades from landing on Mars, if ever. So what happened? Why did everything just stop? Where did we go wrong? And is there any hope for humanity's spacefaring future? About five hours before their planned splashdown, the crew of Apollo 11 wake and prepare for landing. Like excited kids waiting to open presents on Christmas morning, they are up even before Houston attempts to rouse them. Apollo 11, uh, good morning from Houston. Good morning, Lim. Hi, Roger. We saw you were up starting around, and uh, we thought you were probably eating your breakfast there. We've got the uh, maroon bugle all standing by here to uh, give you the morning news. Glad to hear it. It's the last day of the news. Okay, Apollo 11 remains the prime story with the world awaiting uh, your landing today at about uh, 11.49 a.m. Houston time. President Nixon uh, surprised your wives with a phone call from San Francisco just before he boarded a plane to uh, fly out to meet you. President Nixon is flying out to the aircraft carrier assigned to retrieve the crew once they splash down in the Pacific Ocean. Air Canada says it has accepted 2,300 reservations for flights to the moon in the past five days. It might be noted that more than 100 have been made by men for their mothers-in-law. The fun stuff out of the way. Now it's time to get down to business. 
Remember that last night, before they went to sleep, Mission Control informed the crew that a sudden storm had moved into their landing zone. Uh, the night before the capsule was supposed to land in the Pacific Ocean there, 950 miles from Hawaii, there were thunderstorms. And so NASA decided to change the splashdown location just that night before, 250 miles closer to Samoa. And so the ship had to steam all night long to get there. That's John Wolfram. John was a Navy SEAL who'd already done one tour in Vietnam and was about to embark on another. But first, he was chosen to be part of Apollo 11's recovery team. I was the youngest guy on the team at the time, only 20. We'll have lots more from John, the first person to greet the crew of Apollo 11 upon their return, in just a minute. The uh, weather forecast in the landing area uh, right now is 2,000 scattered, uh, high scattered, uh, 10 miles. The wind uh, about 080. At 18 knots, uh, you'll have about three to six foot waves. And it looks like you'll be landing uh, about 10 minutes uh, before sunrise. Over. Okay, sounds good. The clock shows we're five and a half hours away from uh, entry interface, the point at which Apollo 11 will enter the Earth's atmosphere. Earth uh, is really getting bigger up here. Uh, Apollo 11, here the uh, Hornet is uh, on station. Uh, just far enough off the target point to uh, keep from getting hit. A recovery one, are the uh, choppers there, they're on station. Over. Sounds good, thank you. As John Wolfram said, the Navy had to race full speed ahead to the new landing area in order to get on station on time. The ship assigned to recover the capsule and crew is the USS Hornet, an Essex-class aircraft carrier that saw action up and down the Pacific during World War II. And, uh... I guess we're standing by for you to uh, whip into the uh, entry attitude. Okay, we just taking a couple last minute pictures. Uh, Roger, mighty fine. BF, a good trip, and uh, may remember to come in BEF. Jim Lovell told Buzz and the crew to make sure they come in BEF. That means blunt end forward. That's the heat shield side. Astronaut humor. I can see the moon flashing by the window, and it looks uh, what I consider to be a correct side. Apollo Control at 193 hours, 50 minutes. Apollo 11 distance now, 11,463 nautical miles. Approaching at a velocity of 17,322 feet per second. We're just under an hour away from scheduled command module, service module separation. If you'd fallen into a coma just after the first moon landing in 1969 and awoke in 2019, you could be forgiven for assuming the mission sparked a long and robust era of interstellar exploration at NASA. The truth is, enthusiasm for the moon mission started to wane almost immediately. Though we returned to the moon five more times, it would have been six if Apollo 13 hadn't been forced to abort, deploying ever more sophisticated experiments and gaining greater scientific insights. Apollo's budget was soon slashed, and the entire project was halted just three years after Neil and Buzz first set foot on the moon. While some assumed that the moon was just the beginning of America's exploration of space, others, like those in control of the federal purse, felt that we'd beat the Soviets and won the space race. Why did we need to keep going back? Andy Aldrin. It was kind of inevitable. We got in a race, we won the race, and so after the race, you kind of warm down a little bit, and then you go look for the next race, and there wasn't one. What happened after Apollo was kind of the normalization of space. There were a few significant last gasps. Rather than let its leftover rockets go to waste, the U.S. built a space station out of the third stage of a Saturn V. Between 1973 and 74, Skylab was occupied for about 24 weeks, demonstrating that humans can live and work in space for long periods of time. With more leisure, it was not uncommon for the men of Skylab to indulge themselves in the fluidity of movement in zero-g. And in July of 1975, exactly six years after Neil, Buzz, and Michael went to the moon, a command module docked in Earth orbit with a Russian Soyuz spacecraft, and three U.S. astronauts and two Soviet cosmonauts visited each other's spacecraft. With a final goodbye, the astronauts of Apollo and the cosmonauts of Soyuz ended their historic meeting in space. And that was it. After decades of intense rivalry, the space race was officially over, and Apollo was grounded. It wasn't just the Apollo spacecraft coming down, it was the curtain, the last Apollo mission. 
once you beat the Soviets, who cares? Space historian Amy Shearer-Title. Nixon okayed a space shuttle program, but he okayed it as the shuttle to nowhere. It was just a vehicle that could go up. It couldn't go very far. It couldn't land anywhere but on a runway. So we ended up in like NASCAR in space. We ended up just kind of like running laps. While I was alive for the Skylab and Apollo Soyuz missions, I was too young to remember them. I grew up with the space shuttle. I remember seeing the prototype, Enterprise, during its international tour in 1983, which, as a colossal Star Trek fan even then, delighted me to no end. As an adult, I was lucky enough to witness three space shuttle launches and a landing. I loved that ship. But while the space shuttles did great things, including launching the Hubble Space Telescope, which gave us an unparalleled look at our galactic home. And liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. And building the International Space Station, ensuring we've had humans living and working in space continuously for more than two decades. Tonight, I am directing NASA to develop a permanently manned space station and to do it within a decade. The space shuttle was an indisputable technological step backwards. We went from a spacecraft capable of deep space flight to one that couldn't even leave low Earth orbit. It was a perfect landing as the Atlantis touched down after a 13-day mission delivering supplies to the International Space Station, a final voyage that brings the shuttle program to an end. And when the last space shuttle touched down on July 21st, 2011, America no longer had the technology to get to space. To get to and from the International Space Station, it had to begin buying seats on Russian spacecraft. Spacecraft distance is 8,393 nautical miles, velocity 19,512 feet per second. Back in 1969, Apollo 11 is nearly home. Rescue and the Rye aircraft are reported on station. Hornet helicopters uh, containing the swimmers are reported airborne. The weather's still holding real fine in the recovery area. And the sun's going down on schedule. It's getting real dark in here. As you heard earlier, the crew will splash down just before sunrise. As they draw nearer to the Earth, they find themselves shrouded in the darkness of the Earth's night side. They are now traveling down the barrel of a 40-mile-wide entry corridor. In the command module, Michael swears he can feel the gravity of his planet pulling him home. The men swallow anti-nausea pills. Assuming everything goes according to plan, they will soon be bobbing in seas with three to six-foot waves. The men have gone over their entry checklists numerous times already. They have too much time on their hands, and it's beginning to create some anxiety. And we're about 10 minutes away from the scheduled separation time now. It's time to lose the service module, the largest portion of their spacecraft containing most of their power, fuel, and rocket engine. They can't enter the atmosphere if it's still attached. Apollo 11, Houston, we see you getting ready for set. Uh, everything looks mighty fine down here. Same here, Ryan, thank you. We're awaiting confirmation of separation. When Apollo 11 launched, it weighed six million pounds. The only thing left of the once massive Saturn V is the 11,000-pound, triangular-shaped, station-wagon-sized command module. Once detached, thrusters on the service module fire to push it far from the crew. They don't want it burning up anywhere near them. We confirm separation now from uh, on the ground reading from telemetry. We can confirm separation. That old service module's taking good care of us. We want to take good care of it. It sure has, hasn't it? It's been a champ. Apollo 11 Houston, uh, you're still looking mighty fine here. Uh, you're cleared for landing. Yeah, we appreciate that, Ron. Thanks. Roger, gears down and locked. More astronaut humor. Hi, Houston. We got the service module uh, going by. Uh, a little high. Coming across now from right to left. Buzz's words that you just heard were actually classified for years. The thrusters that were supposed to move the service module away didn't work properly. The crew is about to begin their re-entry, and the service module is diving into the atmosphere right beside them. Apollo 11 lined up right down the middle of the entry corridor. Velocity is now 35,578 feet per second. We're a minute and 45 seconds from entry. Blackout will begin 18 seconds after entry. Once the ship strikes the atmosphere and becomes wreathed in plasma, comms with mission control will be impossible. They will be coming down in the blind. And 11 Houston, you're going over the hill there shortly. You're looking mighty fine to us. See you later. We're at entry time. Blackout very shortly. 
There's black guy. At 11.35 a.m. Houston time, 400,000 feet above Australia, Columbia hits the atmosphere at more than 36,000 feet per second, or 10 times faster than a rifle bullet. We had to be able to use the atmosphere to slow us all the way down uh, until we got into a velocity that would allow us to put out the parachutes. That was Apollo 8 and Apollo 13 astronaut Jim Lovell. Tracy Caldwell Dyson is a current NASA astronaut. She went to space twice, once on the space shuttle, and the second time to live aboard the International Space Station. To get home from that trip, she had to take a ride in a Russian Soyuz capsule. And you see the the atmosphere that you're about to go through, and then you fire this one burn. It's a long burn, and it's directed precisely to put you at the right angle and at the right spot to pass through the atmosphere. If Michael didn't calculate the precise right angle, the command module will be vaporized too shallow, and it will bounce off the atmosphere and be flung into space. The blackness the guys were talking about earlier is now gone. Out their tiny windows, the astronauts now begin to see ravenous flames as ionized gases created by the heat of re-entry begin enveloping the ship. Comms are gone. For the next four minutes, no one on Earth will know what's going on inside Apollo 11, or indeed, whether they successfully made it through the atmosphere or disintegrated on re-entry. We're at three minutes, 20 seconds since entry. Uh, blackout should end about three minutes, 53 seconds uh, after entry. We're about 11 minutes away from landing. Back in mission control, Evans at Capcom optimistically attempts to raise the ship. Apollo 11, uh, you through our There is no answer. Inside Columbia, the astronauts can no longer see the service module. They are enveloped in incandescent protoplasm. If you could see them right now, they appear as a blazing comet. Apollo 11, Houston, through Orion. The astronauts are falling through a tunnel of colors, orange, yellow, blue, even lavender, which finally gives way to pure white. Michael feels as if he's sitting inside of an enormous light bulb. Jim Lovell. We could, of course, look out the windows and see the heat shield material flaking off and the flames uh, going past us. You never go through grade school thinking you're going to be in the middle of a fireball. But that's exactly what happens uh, as you go through the atmosphere. Your spacecraft is ablating, and it's designed to do that. Pieces of embers go <laughs> past your window, and you can smell the charring. Or you can feel the G-forces building. What they can't see is that the service module is being torn into fiery pieces. If any of the dying vessel's fragments collide with the command module, it will almost certainly kill everyone aboard. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We tried going to the moon again. Inspired by all that that has come before and guided by clear objectives, today we set a new course for America's space program. We will give NASA a new focus and vision for future exploration. We will build new ships to carry man forward into the universe, to gain a new foothold on the moon, and to prepare for new journeys to the worlds beyond our own. On January 14, 2004, President George W. Bush said, We will undertake extended human missions to the moon as early as 2015, with the goal of living and working there for increasingly extended periods of time. We even tested one of the rockets that was going to get us there. Ignition and liftoff of Ares 1X, testing concepts for the future of new rocket design. On top of the Ares was going to be a new command module named Orion, and blueprints were being drafted for a new lunar module, dubbed Altair. However, when the Obama administration took over, they found the program over budget and behind schedule, and they shut it down. Yes, pursuing this new strategy will require that we revise the old strategy. In part, this is because the old strategy, including the Constellation program, was not fulfilling its promise in many ways. In an organization like NASA, where lead times for developing technology are so long, if you suddenly change the general objective of things every four or eight years, uh, it has a huge impact. We have to stop pushing the reset button every time there's a change of power in Washington. They've been pushing the reset button on NASA again and again and again. And it's been really harmful to the progress of the program. To keep moving the goalposts the entire football stadium, that's destructive. That was NASA chief historian Bill Barry and Apollo historian Andrew Chaikin. Under Obama, NASA proposed a new mission, landing humans on an asteroid. But that, too, soon withered on the vine. And all the while, American astronauts kept getting to and from space on Russian equipment. Then, in 2017, nearly a decade after Constellation was shelved, NASA announced the Artemis program. Fifty years ago, we went to the moon. We called it Apollo. What many people don't know is that Apollo had a twin. She was a woman named Artemis, goddess of the moon. Astronaut Tracy Caldwell-Dyson. Artemis, she represents our next era of exploration in space. Artemis encompasses how we're going to get to the moon and what we're going to do when we get there. NASA's goal is landing the first woman and man on the moon by 2024, just four years from now. We are returning to the moon. As a new generation of explorers, this time to stay. Artemis is intended to be the first step in setting up a long-term human presence on the moon and perhaps even creating a lunar economy. And this is all to explore the surface of the moon and utilize the resources there. We found a an ideal fuel in the, the solar wind materials uh, on the moon for fusion power production. It's called helium-3. Apollo 17 moonwalker and geologist Harrison Schmidt. It's a light isotope of helium that fused with itself produces absolutely no radioactivity. It creates energetic particles that can be converted to electricity at much higher efficiencies than uh, any other kinds of power systems. Artemis is the most ambitious thing NASA has done since Apollo. It is nearly done building the SLS, a new rocket even larger and more powerful than the Saturn V. NASA is building the Space Launch System, comprising of a cargo hold, an exploration upper stage, a massive core stage, and two extended solid rocket boosters. Altogether, this is the world's most powerful rocket, and it exceeds the legendary Saturn V of the Apollo era in numerous ways. The SLS is a space launch system, and it is the greatest rocket we've ever built. Yes, it will be more powerful than the Saturn V. The Orion capsule is the spacecraft that is going to return humans to the moon and destinations beyond. Just as the command module is the only part of the Saturn V to survive the trip, 
So too is the Orion capsule, the only thing to survive Constellation. This is their deep space, human-rated spacecraft called Orion. The crew module, where up to four astronauts will live and work throughout the flight. And while the original command module could hold only three people, the Orion capsule has seating for four. Other than the new LEM, which we'll discuss in just a moment, NASA has added something to the Apollo architecture, the gateway. Building on the lessons learned from the International Space Station, the key to sustainable lunar missions is establishing an orbiting lunar outpost that we call Gateway. A small space station, the Gateway will be placed in orbit around the moon and provide the astronauts living quarters and a research lab. The Apollo missions were inspired by a space race. Artemis is also a global partnership. We're not a race, we're a partnership. We're going to explore the moon for purposes that benefit mankind, to learn more about it and use it as a platform to then go further. I'm profoundly grateful that we are setting our sights on the moon again after so much time when the moon seemed to be sidelined. However, Chaikin is skeptical. And I just am not convinced that we can, even with the most talented people that we have at NASA and elsewhere, it's asking a lot to do it in just five years. But I'm glad we're talking about it. I want to see it happen. I just don't want to see us do it without the same care and the same diligence, because if we don't do those things, we're going to pay the price that they paid in Apollo with accidents and perhaps even fatal accidents. And he's not the only one. Space historian Amy Shira Title feels the same way. Yeah, I feel like we're in that complicated thing where we have to manage expectations with the reality of how hard space is. And that's fine because space is hard. But, you know, let's let's be realistic and say we're going to do this and we're going to do it in the time that it needs to take. For her part, Tracy Caldwell Dyson, who's in line to be the first woman on the moon, thinks NASA is doing just that. We know things take time and they take time because human lives are at stake. Everything in space takes longer. And then in this day and age where everything's so instant, we have to take time or else we're not going to get there smartly and then we could end up hurting somebody in the process. One of the ways NASA is hoping to alleviate time and stress is by allowing commercial interests to take over human and cargo flights to the ISS. That way, they can focus on bigger things. There are a group of billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and some others who are leading sort of the growth of a commercial private space industry that has been over the last decade or so slowly eroding the government's long-held monopoly on space. That's Chris Davenport. I'm a reporter at The Washington Post where I write about space and I'm also the author of a book called The Space Barons. While NASA and other global governments have dominated space exploration, given its expense and risk, private entrepreneurs, Chris's aptly named space barons, are beginning to move in on their domain, bringing with them new technologies and innovative manufacturing processes that drive costs down and get the job done faster. First and foremost, Elon Musk's SpaceX. I mean, they are the ones who sort of broke down the barriers from the very beginning and said, we are going to enter this market and try to disrupt the space launch market. And they've been successful in doing that. And they've gotten multiple contracts from NASA uh, to the tune of billions of dollars to fly first cargo and supplies to the International Space Station, uh, which they've been doing now for a number of years. And SpaceX, along with Boeing, have contracts to fly people to the International Space Station. And then you have Blue Origin, which was founded by Jeff Bezos. Bezos, who owns Amazon, is the richest man in the world. A lot of people don't even realize that Jeff Bezos has a space company, uh, but he does, and they're building a whole suite of vehicles. In fact, Blue Origin will be the lead company designing and building the new lunar module for the Artemis project. Let me show you something. This is Blue Moon. We've been working on this lander for three years. This is an incredible vehicle, and it's going to the moon. And you're seeing NASA initially being, I think, reluctant or wary of that, and now more and more starting to embrace that, saying if we are going to go back to the moon or onto Mars, we're going to need these companies. One of the biggest things companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing is rebooting how we make rockets. Since they were first invented, rockets have been a one-and-done piece of equipment. 
And Elon looked at that and Jeff Bezos looked at that and said, you know, we're never going to lower the cost of space. We keep throwing away the most expensive part of the hardware. Imagine if, after flying from Los Angeles to New York, United Airlines threw away the 737 that brought you there. That's essentially what we're doing in space right now. So they are working on building rockets that deliver their payloads to orbit and then fly back down to Earth and land on land or land on a ship at sea. During the Cold War, space exploration was driven by intense political and ideological rivalries. Today, space has become ego-driven. Davenport once asked Elon Musk about his rivalry with Bezos, and Musk told him, If I had a button that I could press and make Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin go away, I would not press that button. And I think that's because he understands how important it is to have competition and to be driven by rivals. Competition is the best rocket fuel. But Elon Musk is not satisfied with merely shuttling cargo and people to the International Space Station. He and NASA have their eyes set much higher. The reason for creating SpaceX was to accelerate humanity becoming a space-faring civilization to the point where we could potentially become a multi-planet species. All of humanity's eggs are in one basket, and should something happen to the Earth, you know, like if an asteroid would hit the Earth, we're toast. Uh, we're going the way of the dinosaur. And his goal was to sort of have a backup, um, the way you would back up your hard drive, but for humanity, and that's Mars, to make it a place where humanity could go and to extend the light of consciousness well into the future and sort of as an insurance plan. Back in Mission Control, Ron Evans is still trying to raise Neil, Buzz, and Michael in the command module. If Columbia survived re-entry, they should have regained contact again by now. Apollo 11, Houston, through Araya. Apollo 11, Houston, through Araya, standing by. Over. It'd be nice to get that confirmation. A minute's gone by now since they scheduled opening of the mains. On the USS Hornet, spotters scan the sky with binoculars. Come on, Houston, give us the word. <laughs> We're getting nothing from a mission control or from the spaceship. Hornet reports a sonic boom. You ought to see those parachutes. One of the sailors cries out. He thinks he sees something falling through the clouds. Aboard his helicopter, rescue swimmer John Wolfram sees it too. We looked up in the helicopter. You can see the capsule burning back uh, to the atmosphere. Hornet reports momentary visual contact uh, has now disappeared behind clouds. Apollo 11 Houston, uh, standing by for your disky reading, over. Apollo 11 Houston, uh, your disky reading, please, over. That was Neil. They've made it. Hot dog. There they are. And they're obviously all right. The chutes have deployed. Apollo 11 reports right on. We take that to mean that the drove deployed on time. Some of the more sensational moments are when the parachutes open up. And it feels like it brings the whole capsule to a slam stop. And then it spins. And then it sways back and forth. And the whole time you're just hoping that you keep your cookies. Apollo 11 should be on main chutes. It is like one of the craziest rides you've ever had in your life. Eight minutes after first hitting the atmosphere, the command module slowed enough for three large red and white parachutes to open. They had to deploy at just the right time. If they opened too late, the capsule would hit the water too violently. Too early, and they'd likely drift off course, far from rescue. For the crew of Apollo 11, the view outside their windows went from the inky blackness of space to the nucleus of a fireball and is now the dazzling azure blue of the Earth's sky. We're just under uh, four minutes of landing. And with that, Mission Control's work is done. With the chutes deployed, Tactical Operational Command transfers from Mission Control to the USS Hornet. Apollo 1, Apollo 1, Our position 1330, 1615, 11 Hornet, copy. Aircraft report visual with full Splashdown should be just now. Splashdown. Splashdown. They're back from the moon. 
astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins landing in the Pacific Ocean, southwest of Hawaii. Apollo 11 splashes down 825 nautical miles southwest of Honolulu, about 13 nautical miles from the recovery ship. Inside the capsule, Mike Collins is astonished at how blue the ocean looks. Imagine, after nine days of monochrome, black and then gray and then black again, what dropping into a violet ocean must look like to their eyes. Jim Lovell. The splashdown for me was uh, very exhilarating. I could feel the bobbing of the ocean and the spacecraft. And suddenly I realized that, uh, my gosh, I'm home. Everything worked out. Now, if the Navy would be very careful and not to let this spacecraft sink on us, <laughs> we were safe. In Houston, Buzz's son Andy is watching the news. On splashdown day, we had a lot of people over at the house and kind of everyone that was associated with my dad or mom seemed to show up. Andy wishes he was aboard the USS Hornet. Not so much because he wants to be among the first to greet his dad, but rather because he's 11 years old and aircraft carriers are cool. There was sort of a collective sigh of relief when it was all done. His mother, Joan, can finally relax. Her husband and his two shipmates survived the greatest feat humans ever attempted and would soon be on their way home as conquering heroes. At this moment in time, Joan has no idea of the challenges and heartaches to come. But if she had, she would surely have taken some strength in the fact that she had just faced the most profoundly difficult nine days of her life and come out on the other side a hero to her children. My mother was incredibly effective at not letting us know what happened. I didn't sense her anxiety at all. It just reflects the incredible strength that my mom showed throughout this whole process. After the splashdown, Janet Armstrong stood on her front yard and in front of the gathered press, thanked everyone in America for their thoughts and prayers. The entire experience, she said, was quite simply out of this world. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When the capsule hit the ocean water, I think Buzz Aldrin was supposed to flip a lever of the jets in those parachutes, but his hand got knocked off the lever because of the jolt. And the wind carried the capsule upside down. The last thing you want to be attached to in the water is a parachute. 
One of two things is going to happen. Either the parachute will fill with water and drag you under, or it will catch the wind like a sail and begin dragging you away. As soon as Columbia hit the water, Buzz was supposed to trip a circuit breaker, jettisoning the chutes and allowing Michael to deploy inflatable balloons to keep the capsule upright. But the impact was so violent that his hand was knocked off the switch, and by the time he was able to find it again, the gumdrop was already inverted, with each of the men hanging upside down in their seats. Earlier, Michael bet Neil a beer that they'd stay upright. He just lost that bet. They flipped uh, some switches, I think Mark Collins did, that would inflate these balloons, and it took you know, several minutes for that capsule to upright. As they hang upside down with the balloons inflating, Michael thinks how wrongly oriented everything looks. Back in a world with gravity for the first time in nine days, tops and bottoms are real things again. Our helicopter got in position and I'm standing in the door. And as I'm looking down at that capsule, I realized the world was watching, so I didn't want to make any mistakes. John Wolfram jumps from the hovering helicopter and swims over to Columbia, its lower half charred and blackened from re-entry. The capsule is still warm to the touch. John attaches a sea anchor, basically a large cloth bucket designed to fill with water and keep the vessel more or less where it is. I was supposed to get a thumbs up from the astronauts. I saw them grinning back at me. I... Uh, Relayed that to the NASA helicopter that was circling above and let them know that they were okay. This is the frogman. There was two more frogmen. They jumped in, and together we put this flotation bladder around the capsule. And then after that was completed, they dropped down a raft. We inflated it. And then we attached right in front of the hatch door where the astronauts would come out. Next come the bigs, biological isolation garments. The swimmer with the biological isolation garments is in the raft next to the spacecraft. That's Lieutenant Clancy Hattleberg of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. NASA's concerned that the astronauts may have brought something harmful back with them from the moon. Because of this, the rescue divers are all wearing protective gear. And they brought bigs for the Apollo 11 crew to put on as well. The fear of alien pathogens is in the forefront of everyone's minds. 1969 is the same year that Michael Crichton's The Andromeda Strain came out, about the deadly outbreak of an extraterrestrial microorganism. Neil opens the command module hatch, so 25-year-old Lieutenant Hattleberg can hand them their suits. If there are moon bugs, they were just released into our atmosphere and ocean. So much for that plan. Lieutenant Hattleberg is now transferring the to the crew. Hattleberg reseals the hatch. Inside Columbia, Neil, Buzz, and Michael stand unsteadily. After a week and a half in space, Earth normal gravity feels, well, alien. The men swallow several more anti-nausea meds. The last thing they want to do is throw up inside their biohazard suits. The big swimmer is now spraying the hatch area and the top deck and around the hatch on the command module with a decontaminant. While the crew changes, Lieutenant Hattleberg uses a large brush to scrub the exterior of Columbia with a sudsy decontaminant, just in case it's covered in space bugs. First astronaut is now emerging. After they downed them, they came out into the raft. Hattleberg washed them all down. Once all the astronauts are decontaminated, they climb aboard the raft. They are splashed by waves, and even though they're covered head to toe, they can feel the refreshing cold. Michael wants nothing more than to rip off his suit, splash cold water all over his face, and inhale the fresh sea air. They are burning up inside those suits. Hold on, one hornet understand. Uh, recovery is making it Pick up the first One by one, Neil, Buzz, and Michael are lifted into a hovering helicopter. As the helicopter with the Apollo 11 crew begins making its way back to the Hornet, John Wolfram and the rest of the Navy SEALs decide to grab a little memento of the occasion. When no one was looking, we stripped off hunks of that gold foil that was burned off from coming back uh, through the atmosphere and put it down our website for souvenirs. We knew that once the capsule got on board the USS Hornet, uh, the Marines would be guarding it. So we got our souvenirs first. 
Aboard the helicopter, Michael and Buzz stand precariously on unsteady legs. Now that gravity is once again a factor, their body fluids are moving in very different ways than they have for the past week and a half. When the helicopter touches down on the Hornet, the flight elevator descends to the hangar deck where the men are escorted to a mobile quarantine chamber, a modified Airstream trailer. Their faceplates are so fogged up they can hardly see anything, but they can hear a band playing. They will remain in this trailer until they reach the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston, three days from now, at which point they will be transferred to a larger quarantine facility for the next three weeks. Back in Houston, flight controllers begin lighting cigars and waving small American flags. Above them all, glowing on the main display screen, are the words John F. Kennedy uttered to Congress nearly 10 years earlier. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And so this nation has. Locked inside the trailer with Neil, Buzz, and Michael are two NASA representatives, including a flight surgeon, who gives each of the men a quick physical. Next, they enjoy a quick but much-needed shower. While they wait for the celebration outside to begin, the men are shown several videos covering their landing and moonwalk. Buzz said that they were sitting there watching these tapes and it suddenly dawned on him that he and Neil and Mike were removed from that. He turned to Neil and he said, Neil, we missed the whole thing. The mood on the USS Hornet is jubilant. The mobile quarantine trailer is surrounded by euphoric sailors and NASA personnel. From the midst of the melee, President Richard Nixon appears and greets the astronauts through a large window. This is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation, because as a result of what happened in this week, the world is bigger, infinitely. As a result of what you've done, the world's never been closer together before. And we just thank you for that. And I only hope that all of us in government, all of us in America, that as a result of what you've done, we can do our job a little better. We can reach for the stars just as you have reached so far from the stars. The astronauts will later be treated to a steak dinner, and Michael will finally get that martini he's been craving. In our first episode, I mentioned that humankind has always been driven by an innate desire to explore. There are times in human history when people have struck out beyond the known universe and have gone over the next hill into the next valley, got on a boat and crossed an ocean. And uh, the Apollo program was one of those times when people really and truly were exploring, pushing the boundaries of human understanding and investigating new places that no one had ever seen before. Once climbed, the unexplored hill on the horizon now becomes familiar territory. But that's the thing about exploration, isn't it? There's always another mountain. There's always another horizon calling to us. Going to the moon is super important, but the ultimate goal is to go to Mars. I think Mars is the next uh, logical destination. I think the moon is absolutely in the critical path to get to Mars. The next real advance of spaceflight is to go back to the moon and then use the architecture of going to the moon and expand it to go to Mars. And I'm positive that man one day will go to Mars. Why? Because it's there. Robert Zubrin was five years old when Sputnik flew. And while to the adults it may have been terrifying to me as a small kid, it was exhilarating. It meant that these stories that I was already reading about the spacefaring future, science fiction, were going to be true. And uh, I wanted to be part of it. Robert is an aerospace engineer, the president of the Mars Society, and the author of the book, The Case for Mars. I was 17 when we landed on the moon, and if anybody had told me then that I'd be 67 and we wouldn't be on the moon, and in fact on Mars, I would have thought they were crazy. Apollo was the last hurrah of the people that won World War II, and a political class that could work together to accomplish great ends, whether it was World War II, the interstate highway system, the development of nuclear energy, or Apollo. What great accomplishments has the U.S. government achieved since 1973? Without a goal, you don't achieve anything. And the human spaceflight program has been drifting for almost 50 years. Apollo inspired Americans, showing them that they were capable of doing great things. It motivated tens of thousands of people to go into engineering 
and was the bedrock on which our modern, computerized, and technological world is based. But for Zubrin, we are living off of Apollo's vapors. Just days after Apollo 11 returned to Earth, Werner von Braun, the architect of the Saturn V, began drawing up plans for a Mars mission. For Robert and many in the space industry, we should have listened to von Braun. We never should have abandoned the moon, but rather used it as an outward-bound school where we could learn to live off-planet, honing our skills for our next trek into the unknown. Mars. For Zubrin, there are three reasons to go to Mars. For the science, for the challenge, and for the future. The science. There's profound science to be discovered by going to Mars. Mars was once a warm and wet planet. The early Mars was very similar to the early Earth. I mean, I'm convinced that there was once life on Mars, and there probably still is. Second is the challenge. I believe that civilizations are like individuals. We grow when we challenge ourselves. We stagnate when we do not. And then finally, there's the future. If we do what we can do in our time, which is establish that first human foothold on Mars, then, you know, 500 years from now, there will be new branches of human civilization. And we're talking about new nations, new cultures, new languages, new literatures, new traditions, new contributions to technology and invention and social thought, new heroes, new tales of great deeds that will be used to inspire people that will go further. And if you have it in your power to create something grand and wonderful, then you should. Robert believes this so strongly that he thinks NASA should skip the moon and divert all of its energies to Mars. We're not going to fully inspire the next generation of youth by replicating a feat done by their grandparents' generation. We're going to inspire them by going to a new world, to do what hasn't been done before, to see what hasn't been seen before, to discover what was never known before. That's why we're going to Mars, and that's why this will inspire the next generation. And yet I hear some of you asking, what about our problems back here on Earth? As we discussed on the outset of this podcast, the America of 1969 bears an uncomfortable resemblance to the America of 2019. For every York, Pennsylvania, there's a Ferguson, Missouri. For every Vietnam, there's Afghanistan. For every Cold War, there's Russian meddling in our elections. For every looming impeachment of Richard Nixon, there's the looming impeachment of Donald Trump. For every protest in favor of civil liberties, voting rights, and equal pay, there's, well, you know. And now we're setting our sights on the moon and beyond. Are we fools to try this again? The criticisms leveled by civil rights leaders who protested all of the money spent on Apollo at the expense of the nation's most vulnerable remain both valid and omnipresent today. Fifty years on, not much appears to have changed. And yet... I'm reminded of the words of NASA's Bill Dunford, who said, Why should we worry about what's going on outside the cave? We have so many problems here inside the cave. Why should we waste time trying to figure out agriculture? We have so much work to do hunting and gathering. Why should we spend so much effort messing about in boats? We have so many issues right here on land. Why should we fiddle with those computers? There's so much calculating that still needs to be done with these pencils. Why should we explore space? We have so many problems right here on Earth. It's all about how we prioritize our future. After all, NASA's entire 50-year budget is roughly equal to what this country spends on its military in just one year. Historically, NASA's grandest steps have stimulated our economy, supercharged our innovation, created astonishing spin-off technologies, broadened our science, inspired new generations with new opportunities, and reminded us to look up from our domestic squabbles and take in the cosmic perspective. Asking if space exploration is a sensible use of our money is a reasonable and rational question, but it cannot be the only question. We must also ask, would everything we've learned and everything we've derived been possible without it? Would our revolutions in computing and communications, in medicine and transportation, in astrophysics and planetary sciences, come about without Apollo? Would we understand our own planet, including the peril it's in right now because of our thoughtlessness, if we had not dared to step off world? Beyond the political victories and the scientific insights, the space program gave a mangled America hope. Hope that a better future is within reach. 
throughout our history, from the Mayflower to the modern refugee crisis, humans have left the safe or the familiar to undertake a bold mission to a new world. And we can do it again. Before explorer George Mallory departed to scale Mount Everest, he was asked why he was undertaking such a difficult and perilous quest. Because it is there, he answered. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. During the crew's voyage back to the United States aboard the USS Hornet, Michael excused himself and left his colleagues. The Columbia had been connected to the mobile quarantine facility by an airtight tunnel, and Michael climbed aboard, alone, taking it all in one last time. The Apollo 11 mission lasted 195 hours, 18 minutes, and 35 seconds. And in that time, the ship traveled nearly one million miles. Michael pulled a pen from his pocket, and in an act understood by anyone who has ever wanted to ensure that they are remembered for something they did or saw, scribbled the following graffiti on one of the command module's equipment bay panels. Apollo 11, alias Columbia, the best ship to come down the line. God bless her. Michael Collins, command module pilot. That note and the vessel it adorns now rest in the lobby of the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., a tangible testament to nine extraordinary days in July. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and executive producer Andrew Jacobs. This spectacular series was his brilliant idea. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers Brianne Chasso and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. Licensing, rights, and clearances by Deborah Correa. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. Studio space generously provided by Gabby and Helen Phibbs. The experts who contributed to this final episode were Andy Aldrin, Navy SEAL John Wolfram, journalist Chris Davenport, author of The Space Barons, NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry, Andrew Chaikin, the author of A Man on the Moon, Robert Zubrin, the author of The Case for Space and The Case for Mars, Space historian Amy Shearer Title, the author of Fighting for Space, out later this month. Apollo 13's Jim Lovell, Apollo 17's Harrison Schmidt, and current NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson. In addition to the works just mentioned, the following books were essential in shaping this series Carrying the Fire by Michael Collins, Magnificent Desolation by Buzz Aldrin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, First Man by James Hansen and Two Sides of the Moon by Alexei Leonov and David Scott. This podcast would have been impossible without the profound assistance of so many people at NASA. People like Bert Ulrich, Sandra Johnson, Brandy Dean, Gregory Wiseman, and Stephanie Sheralds. NASA's Apollo 11 Flight Journal, compiled by David Woods, Ken McTaggart, and Frank O'Brien, was absolutely indispensable. And of course, the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who is responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you heard selections from in this podcast. Lastly, I want to acknowledge iHeart's own Noel Brown, Tristan McNeil, Crystal Waters, and David Wasserman for their unbroken and tireless assistance. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. You can subscribe to Nine Days in July wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phibbs. Thank you so much for listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.